the first time I took a drug, I was eight years old. By age 13, I was shooting up and I had 15 years of addiction, most of it completely hidden, right? So even with all the resources that I had, I had I had social support, I had family support, I had financial support. It still took me a really long time to get to a place where I could stay in recovery. This is the Knocking Doors Down podcast, featuring celebrities, experts, and everyday people who have overcome adversities, including addiction, mental health, and trauma, to live purposeful lives. And that's what Knocking Doors Down is all about. On this episode, I'm speaking with Erin Carr. She's the author of Strung Out. It is her debut memoir. And it is just a phenomenal book. I highly recommend you pick up a copy of it. It's honest, it's true, it's authentic. Erin had to tell her story of childhood trauma and how she fell into using heroin at the age of 13. Erin also does amazing writing with her Ask Erin column. She talks addiction, recovery, mental health, parenting, relationships, and so much more. Erin's established herself as a respected voice in our national conversation about the overdose epidemic. We not only touch on her story, we talk harm reduction and what we think can actually be done to curb the overdose death rate in the United States. It's a true pleasure to know Erin, and I'm glad she used this platform to share her purpose. Speaking of purpose, how about a lifestyle brand with purpose? 5150 LTM. That's right. Not only is it a lifestyle brand that can fit whatever it is you're trying to achieve in life, but they give back to the community. Right now, I am wearing my new 5150 hat, warm weather jacket. As well, I got my new 5150 joggers on that I like to wear around the winter time. And you, the listener of Knocking Doors Down, get 20% off every time you shop at 5150LTM. All you have to do is use the code KDD20 at checkout and get 20% off. And of course, I said it helps within the community. And how does 5150 give back to the community? Portions of the sales benefit the Carlos Vieira Foundation. There are three amazing programs, the Race to End the Stigma, which focuses on mental health, the race for autism, helping families in the community who have children that have special needs and are on the autism spectrum scale, and the race to be drug-free, providing free after-school athletic programs to the youth within our community, keeping them off the streets, away from gangs and drugs. More on the Carlos Vieira Foundation, go to carlosvierafoundation.org. Aaron Carr, the author of Strung Out, Last Hit, and Other Lies That Nearly Killed Me. Thanks for joining me on Knocking Doors Down. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I am loving the book, and uh, we'll get more into that a little little bit later. Uh, so much stuff to go through. I mean, learning that you have you know Persian descent and all these things that when we had spoken uh, separate of this podcast, I was like, wow, I didn't know that. <laughs> um, but such a fascinating um, uh, story, your story. What are you finding, um, you know, as of this recording, we're facing the holiday season and you have your mm -hmm. wonderful um, column, excuse me, I was just having a bagel and a schmear before we got on here, <laughs> of uh, Ask Aaron, um, are you getting a lot of people that are really struggling this time of year? I mean, I think it's a hard time of year for a lot of people for different reasons. I mean, you know, for people who um, may be estranged from their families, for um, people who are going home to see family members and they might have like really toxic family dynamics. I get a lot of questions around the holidays um, about people who are newly sober and having anxiety about navigating either family functions or just holiday parties in general. Right. That's a question I get frequently. And then the other thing that comes up a lot is sort of like, just anxiety about um, talking to people about why they're not drinking or just that they have this messed up family dynamic. Right. Uh, uh, yeah. I uh, uh, Let me ask your advice on that. Cause sure. I went through that. I did the big explanation of the not mm -hmm. drinking my primarily DOC drug of choice. Um, I know you're a little bit different for sure, right. <laughs> but how do you kind of advise people to navigate that? I mean, 
You know, I think that it's obviously it's an individual thing, but I think that if you feel comfortable talking about it, you can tell people that you didn't feel well when you drank or that, you know, when, when you drank, you found that like your life was worse (laughs) (laughs) or if you don't really want to talk about it, it's not really anybody's business. I mean, you can just say like, I don't really like alcohol. I don't like what alcohol does to me. Any of those sorts of answers. I mean, I think that like, it's not uncommon for people not to drink right mm-hmm. now. I think that, that that you'll often find um, that there may be people not drinking for a variety of reasons. What happens sometimes in families where there are a lot of other heavy drinkers, I think it sometimes puts other people's it, sort of like they might have a reaction to it because they feel uncomfortable about their own drinking because I found that when I was newly sober, people felt like they had to explain their own drug and alcohol use to me. I'm like, I could care less what your drug and alcohol <laughs> use is, you know? Uh-huh. Um, so I think it's like, you know, giving an honest answer. There's also the option that was sort of like always an old standby for people to just tell them that you have, you've developed an allergy to alcohol. That's a, that's a good one. I've actually said that because if I break it down, it's true. Like uh, my my line ended up becoming one guy goes, really? What happens? I go, yeah, I break out in handcuffs. Right, right. <laughs> you know? I mean, and, you know, I mean, truthfully, there are people, you know, I mean, alcohol was never my drug of choice, but like I was never, I was never really a part of my story, but I never was good with red wine because I actually physically had like a physical, physical allergy to it, like with sneezing. <laughs> so, I mean, there's all different sorts of ways to address that. I feel like the allergy line, just saying like, you know, I'm allergic. What are they going to say to that? (laughs) You know what I mean? Um, And, and then I think also like if you're at a, uh, a more sort of like work related or social function where you don't know the people as well, it's very easy to get a drink Mm -hmm. from the bar that looks like a cocktail I always, this is a really stupid example, but I was watching this reality show below deck and the captain, (laughs) the captain is not an alcoholic, but he doesn't ever drink on charter. So if he dines with the guests that he has apple, apple juice with like a large ice cube. So it looks like whiskey or he'll have just like seltzer with lime, but it looks like, you know, like a gin and tonic or vodka tonic. And uh, because it's, Otherwise, guests get really pushy, even though he's like, it's not because he's not doesn't drink socially. It's just he doesn't drink on charter. Otherwise, guests will ask him, you know, like, oh, come on, just have a little drink. So he just pretends he's drinking. Yeah. That's not the right strategy for everybody. But sometimes it's easier for people to feel like they have something that looks uh, like an alcoholic beverage. The good thing is, is that now there's been such a huge movement with sort of non-alcoholic cocktails. Um, There are non-alcoholic bars in New York City. Um, You know, (laughs) various people have different reactions to that. Some people, you know, don't, don't like, don't feel the need for like a mocktail. Some people like it because then it just still feels kind of like a special celebratory drink. Yeah. Um, so there's lots of ways to navigate, navigate that. Yeah. For me, I found, you know, I've had talks with so many different alcoholics, but like a non-alcoholic beer doesn't trigger me. A mocktail right. doesn't trigger me. And if I am out and it is a thing, I do exactly what you're talking about. Right. The, the the tonic water with the lime. Right. You know, people leave me alone. But I think that's the part of the recovery process. Yeah. But it's like this works for me. Oh, totally. well, it worked for me. I don't know. Right. It might trigger you. For me, it doesn't. Right. I mean, there right. There are people that don't won't eat like desserts that have alcohol in them. Sure. But I never found that. I mean, I just again, it, it wasn't my my I never, ever had um, problematic drinking. So I don't have that reaction to alcohol. So if I have like, you know, there's alcohol in my tiramisu, it does not. It, I'm not like, oh, now I want to drink. You know? <laughs> The Knockin' Doors Down book shares all the history and inspiration behind the Carlos Vieira Foundation and how it all started. All proceeds from the book benefit the Carlos Vieira Foundation's Race to Be Drug-Free campaign. So what's that all about? Through the Race to Be Drug-Free campaign, Carlos Vieira Foundation raises awareness about drug abuse, donates to drug-free programs, and brings drug-free speakers into schools to educate youth. The Race to Be Drug-Free campaign's main program is the Gloves Not Drugs boxing program. 
This program is completely free for kids between the ages of 8 and 17 to learn discipline, strength, respect, camaraderie, and the art of boxing. The program was created to keep kids off the streets, out of gangs, and away from drugs. For more info and to get involved, check out carlosvierafoundation.org. Well, speaking of the family navigation, I believe I'm on chapter seven of your book mm-hmm. now. And so there's a lot of really interesting nuances with your childhood, your folks. Um, uh, the first one I want to ask, because I've I've had several friends that were Persian, too. Mm-hmm. And one of the hard things for them was, much like you, your dad is talking to your grandma in uh, Farsi and mm-hmm. you don't understand. Was there mm-hmm. ever anything that made you not being able to communicate in that way in isolation? I mean, you know, my father never, re- he only really spoke to his siblings and parents in Farsi. And he had one friend who was also Persian, but my dad was one of those people who like came to the U S in the late sixties mm. to go to college. And he never went back and um, really assimilated, identified as American. And, you know, <clears throat> in some ways I feel like I didn't get a lot of sort of um, the same sort of exposure to Persian culture, the way that other Persian Americans I know did because there was so much assimilation. And I don't know if that was, you know, his own desire to sort of just fit in. Um, but I mean, I didn't, <clears throat> I don't know that I, it, 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 added any more to that sense but certainly you know you always wonder if people are talking about you <laughs> speaking another language <laughs> right uh see, mike so when your dad left that wasn't when the stuff with the shah and all that was going down in iran right that he was way before that? he he left about over 10 years before okay like maybe yeah he left like 15 years before that happened like the thir- like 13 14 years before that happened okay. and I- Actually, I think the majority of my father's family was already living in Europe and the U.S. Um, so, yeah, but but certainly when all of that happened, I was a small child and I remember there was so much like anti-Iranian sentiment. Right. Um, and I remember that very clearly. Yeah, I was going to that was kind of my inquiry was if, you know, there was the family trauma, thus generational trauma, mm-hmm. and, you know, with, the, with a lot of the work that you do and you're very out there about it. It's like, hey, sorry, societal traumas, family traumas, generational mm-hmm. traumas, uh, all this stuff is real. And I, oh, yeah. And so many people don't believe me when I say oh, I have bullshit. No, it's real. And mm-hmm. so I was curious if that had played in. So, uh, I mean, I definitely think that like I grew up in a really very, very um, white neighborhood, very, very white school. Like I was like the token ethnic friend. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> I mean, I said, not that my friend, my friends were fine, but it's just, I definitely, you know, obviously I had all the benefits of white privilege in the world, but I still at the same time was other. Right. So mm-hmm. I, um, you know, I, I, it's I think that for anybody who has like mixed ethnicity or mixed race, that there is a little bit of like you're kind of straddling more than one world right. and kind of don't really fit in either, right. <laughs> you know, which is not, you know, unique to me. And certainly, like I said, I mean, I, I had plenty of of privileges, um, but but it's I didn't you know, I definitely was aware of the fact that you know, the, the question that I always got is like, where are you from <laughs> Los Angeles? No, but like, where are you from? <laughs> or, you know, being called exotic, which my answer was always like, that's not, I'm not a plant. You know I mean? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not some kind of bird or something. Yeah. It's like the most, re- I hate it when people use that to describe somebody who's like not white, right. <laughs> you know, <You're> very exotic. <laughs> <laughs> so are, so are some cars. I don't know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh... So, yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, and, and obviously, that that say the same sort of neighborhood that I grew up in is much more diverse now. It was you know ten minutes outside of downtown Los Angeles, but it was a very sort of waspy neighborhood. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, you. T- I mean, you talk about that, and one of the interesting things for me, and I kind of felt this. I grew up in the home of addiction. My my dad mm-hmm. was. 
that you got kind of presented to was your dad's way of sometimes showing love was the purchasing of gifts. I mean, you mm-hmm. you did equestrian and mm-hmm. you got a car, I believe, yeah. a Jeep before you were 16 and yeah. before you were even 18, an apartment rented for you and all these mm-hmm. things. And, you know, I'm kind of seeing that in a, in a personal situation, not on my hand, but um, it's so detrimental. It re- It is. And it's not, you know, it's like, it's not, it doesn't come from a malicious place, right? I mean, that's the thing is that like, you know, I think it's not uncommon for when there's a divorce, it's not uncommon where one parent is maybe working a lot and they feel guilty and it's a really easy way to sort of band-aid a situation. And I, I think that I, it's a twofold thing. Like number one, like on a subconscious level, I think I equated love with money And so if my dad ever said no to something, I felt like a very like outsized reaction to it because it felt like some sort of rejection. Mm -hmm. And then the other side of it is that I really manipulated him in a lot of ways um, to get what I wanted. And I think that, you know, not just in, in financial situations, but in general, when people have that sort of manipulative behavior, I always say that it's born of of a place that they don't trust that they're going to get what they want or need unless they manipulate. And um, that that's not to excuse the behavior. It's just, but it's an explanation. I mean, this doesn't come out of a vacuum. It's not, it doesn't come out because people want to hurt other people or be malicious. Um, It's generally because they don't trust that they're going to get their needs or wants filled. Yeah. Well, it's that wise brain that we start to develop from all the stuff we take in as a kid, mm-hmm. don't you think? And yeah. And then all of a sudden, yeah, it becomes this, this is how needs are met. And especially us that are in trauma mode, survival mode, mm-hmm. we will do any and everything to keep that going. Cause that's the only story we know. Right. Right. I mean, I, I definitely, you know, like I believed that I was shown how much I was valued or loved through what I was given because, you know, my parents had their own, they had their own backstories and their own histories and their own stuff going on and did the best they could. And I have a really good relationship with both of them now, you know, um, but I certainly, I, I didn't feel protected as a child. I didn't feel like I could trust them with, anything that happened to me or was going on with me, I felt like, okay, you know, like at a really early age, I was like, okay, Aaron, you're going to have to figure this out. And it was exactly that. It was so much about like survival and protecting myself. Um, You do such a great job. I think it's chapter two where you're really mm -hmm. kind of digging in with your mom and uh, uh, one of her boyfriends at the time. Mm -hmm. And you just, whatever it was, this guy, and it was like your mom negated your feelings. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that at the time it was devastating, right? You know, the the greatest gift my mom gave me is that when we went to therapy a couple of years later, um, she allowed me to tell her how I felt and validated those feelings. Now, our relationship still had, you know, you know, we still had our ups and downs after that. But I, I've had that in the forefront of my mind the entire time I've been a parent, because (laughs) that my mom apologized to me and validated me and acknowledged how hard that must have been was huge, you know, huge, huge, huge. And I give her so much credit for that because it's really challenging, you know, as parents, a hundred percent, like I think even the most well-intentioned parents are going to probably leave some scars on their children because you know, and, and the hope is with every generation, we get a little bit healthier. But I think that, you know, as conscient, conscientious as I've been with my own kids, certainly with my older son, I was newly sober and kind of figuring out how to be an adult and made so many mistakes, you know. But what I as like what I learned from my mom is that when I messed up, I didn't like try to justify it or put it on him or deny that something happened. I've been able to apologize and sort of model what that behavior looks like the way my mom did for me. I mean, you know, through her own therapy and stuff, that's why she was able to sit in a room with me and let me unload on her about how I felt. 
and listen and not get defensive. Yeah. And it's, it's a really, you know, it's a valuable skill as a parent. It's, and it's, it's tough. I, I, I had something recently with my oldest and I had to kind of do the same and I did the best I could to own it and remind him, you know, I'm only as old a parent as you are alive. Right. And I'm human and I'm flawed. And, yeah. you know, both of my kids are very aware of of, of my alcoholism and mm-hmm. we've talked openly about it. And, you know, I've tried to depart. I'm a 12 step guy. I didn't I never asked you in our conversation. Are mm-hmm. you did you 12 step? And I did do the 12 steps. I'm not in a 12 step program anymore. It didn't ultimately end up being the right um, recovery. Mm modality for me, but it certainly helped me and laid a foundation at the time. It's just, yeah. it's just not what I ultimately needed. Yeah. Well, I, I'm going to ask you, I want to know what mm-hmm. did, did work for you. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, that foundation, like you said, was mm-hmm. really helpful for me to simply, you know, own my actions. What's my part in this mm-hmm. and try to keep, you know, open dialogue and communication, you know, mm-hmm. Hey, I'm a human. Uh, I don't want that responsibility of any kind right. of perfection in any way. So yeah, it's a real, real challenge. Um, but I've kind of been exploring things outside of just the, the 12 step rooms. Mm-hmm. What, what was it then for you after maybe doing some exploration in the 12 steps that did you did find sobriety or it was really mental health support. And for me, you know, I think so much of my addiction was based in trauma. And um, I, you know, it was for me using drugs was a maladaptive coping skill, right? You know, I say in the book, and I've said all over the place that like, you know, heroin saved my life until it didn't. Um, I was extremely suicidal when I first started using and, and it was, it was like, the thing that was like, okay, this is going to help me get through this. So I don't jump out the window. Right. I'm not suggesting that's a good coping <laughs> skill for anyone, but it was what I found, right? That's how, that's how we all sort of lean on those maladaptive coping strategies is because we don't have healthy ones and the trauma. And then the trauma caused by that maladaptive coping mechanism alters the neural pathways in our brain, right? So that you know, it's like a trigger response thing, which is why, you know, the neural pathway in our brain, the second that we are in discomfort, pain, any sort of suffering, we want to go to that coping mechanism. What helped me immensely wasn't just talk therapy, but was what was, you know, implementing different forms of cognitive behavioral therapy Mm. in my life so that I learned things to, um, to do, to try to practice so that my first impulse when I was in pain was not to go back to a drug, right? Because right. I mean, the last few years, as you'll see, as you get towards the end of the book, I mean, the end of my using, I was not even getting what I needed. I wasn't getting the release anymore at all. With every relapse, it wasn't even that, it, you know, the last couple of relapses weren't even that dramatic. It was just that it just wasn't working. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, over time, I learned how to use those co- new coping skills to sit in my, to stay in my body, to be in discomfort, whether that's emotional, mental, or physical. I don't mean pain because I, like if I have surgery, I take pain medication. <laughs> right. But, um, but uh-huh. I, I, uh, it really, really was, was, it was life altering and it didn't happen overnight. And, you know, I, I was fortunate enough that I had access to medical care. I had access to, you know, see a psychiatrist, get on medication that I had resisted for so long because when I was trying to, to stay sober, you know, some people were like, oh, you know, if you take for me, it was Wellbutrin. They're like, oh, that you're not really sober. (laughs) Ridiculous. And I I just think, you know, my thinking on that is completely different now. But I had so many conflicted feelings about psychiatric medication. I had so much fear of being way more fear around being called crazy than being called a junkie. Yeah, that that being ostracized, I think, 
prevents a lot of people from just simply saying, I need help, let alone forget what we can get. You and I, it's both a hot button for us is just a support system of a a ill society. But yeah, just that I need help and being like, you know, I've seen it with people I know that their family, Mm -hmm. like, there's nothing wrong. You don't need that. And it's like, oh, I mean, that was that was much very much like you know, when I, for the first time I went to rehab, there was very much like, oh, you're not like these people, Aaron, like from, from my family. And it's, you know, it's, it's people do that again, because it's like, it forces them to confront things that they don't want to confront. Um, so, you know, it for me, it was cognitive behavioral therapy, learning to process that trauma mm-hmm. that I had never processed mm-hmm. and, and then time, you know, so like, as, I practiced new coping skills, those neural pathways. The good thing about the brain is it's extremely elastic. So you really kind of retrain your brain. I mean, I don't, you know, I, in March, it'll be 20 years since, since, um, you know, I'd taken, I've taken drugs and, you know, other than as prescribed for surgeries and things. Um, I never thought that that was a possibility for me. And it's, it's, truly like I don't have I don't have cravings I don't have you know I don't get triggered I've you know I mean in New York like it's not uncommon that like I see somebody shooting up on the street like it does not trigger me in any any way at all um but it takes that time and I think that it's also you know when we're newly in recovery it takes some time for sort of like homeostasis to come back just in your body systems and then it's retraining those neural pathways. And truthfully, the 12 steps are a form of cognitive behavioral therapy. It's just that I think in my case, and for many people, they have larger mental health issues, more trauma than non-medical professionals, you know, not that, that your peers and like a sort of simple cognitive behavioral program can fix. Yeah. And I think that's why there's such a high rate of relapse. And, you know, I like a broken record with it, but you know, the, the, the more money um, we put into subsidizing mental health, long-term mental health programs for people in recovery, the higher success rates we're going to have because they really, you know, I mean, rehab's great, but that's not what's going to keep you sober. That's just about detoxing and like being in like, sort of like a little bit of a bubble for a short period of time. I, I didn't, you know, I mean, I, I went to rehab twice, but when I, finally got it i detoxed with the help of a doctor and over the course of seven days and that was and then i you know had a lot of mental health care for years (laughs) (laughs) as do i Uh, it's necessary to keep because at the end of the day we're the one we're the gatekeepers of ourselves and Mm -hmm. you know and that's a good place to be um you know like you were saying you know and for me where i'm at is is sometimes we've got to step or not sometimes it's inevitable. We got to step out the safety of of the anonymous room or right. the rehab or the sober living or whatever mm-hmm. it is. And you know what what helped me stumble onto your work was the passion about. I'm not calling people sick, and I don't I don't want to twist your words, but there mm-hmm. is a lot of ill that is out there, mm-hmm. and I'm so disheartened by. <sighs> what's my words sorry i'm gonna curse no fucking That's effort right. <laughs> right. to to really just have a look and realize that if you politicians that say all these things mm-hmm. and promise this stuff and everything everybody it's like why why can't you see this like i don't know why addiction isn't more treated like a mental illness that takes mm-hmm. long-term recovery mm-hmm. it, you know, people, you're an example. I'm an example. Mm-hmm. So many people, you and I know examples of being at the depths of despair to right. dying multiple times that you can come back for this. But we're some of the fortunate ones. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, that's the thing is I like, I, like I said, I mean, it was infinitely, I started the first time I took a drug, I was eight years old. By age 13, I was shooting up. And I had 15 years of addiction, most of it completely hidden, right? So even with all the resources that I had, I had I had social support, I had family support, I had financial support. It still took me a really long time to get to a place 
where I could stay in recovery. And, and when you add on further obstacles, be they racial, socioeconomic, cultural, those, the, the, the difficulty in maintaining recovery just, just, um, amplifies, you know, and, and, so I think that we really need to recognize that the good thing is, is that there is movement in terms of how we're treating addiction. Um, you know, I, a big part of what I do is advocacy and lobbying for drug policy reform, increased access to medicated assisted treatment. Um, and, and, you know, we spend so much money on the war on drugs. And if we, put the money into treating people who are actually suffering in both preventative ways and in, in, in um, restorative ways, we would spend half of what we spend on this like never ending, you know, monster of this mythical monster of like the drug supply. It's, you know, the drug supply is there because of the need for people who are suffering. Yeah. There's no demand nobody exactly there's nothing to produce so it's just it's 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 completely like throwing money out the window because they will they will always find a new way to get drugs in cheaper faster and you know that that's just the reality and so i really think that the that even for people you know regardless of political affiliation if you want to look at it just from a pure economic standpoint, there is data on sort of like the cost of the opioid epidemic, for example, the cost of the opioid epidemic doesn't begin and end with the person using opioids. There is a trickle down effect generationally to their family members, to their children, to the lost wages, to the, to, to lost future wages, because say the parent dies. I mean, there's, there's, there is such a, a a staggering economic cost to all of us. You know, everybody, you know, it's it's this mindset of like, we have to stop thinking that social support systems are giving free, free money away to people. That's not what it is. It's, you know, it's the same thing. I mean, I could argue for days about this with, you know, like with, with just healthcare in general. The less we spend on healthcare, we think, oh, I don't want to spend my money, my tax dollars, because, you know, for that guy over there. Well, guess what? By not doing that, you're going to end up on the back end paying more in your insurance premiums, your medication costs, and on and on and on. Whereas if we put a little bit more in up front, we would all be saving money, (laughs) you know? And I think that, like, you know, there are some people who see it that way, but but you know it's it's so much about so much of like what dictates policy is power yeah. and 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 that's one of the things that that um that i hope will change with time i mean the good and bad part about the drug crisis reaching sort of every facet of every type of american is that it's a bipartisan issue in sort of my talks with with legislators and their legislative aides there is, you know, it, this is completely a bipartisan issue. There's no, there's no um, challenge for me in reaching out to to both parties and getting them to listen. And there is a a marked turn toward greater harm reduction yeah. because of the economic cost yeah. of the overdose crisis. <laughs> 5150 is a lifestyle. We believe in pushing yourself, finding your passion, knowing your dreams and working hard, and always striving to make those dreams your reality. We believe life is too short to sit back and say, what if? Go after it, grab it, and make it happen. Being 5150 is committing to that long, hard road. That road you know is going to be tough, but the most rewarding. That's living the madness. That's 5150. If you're living the 5150 lifestyle, then celebrate by rocking the goods. So listen up. There's a special deal for listeners of Knocking Doors Down. Go to 5150LTM.com and enter code KDD20 and receive 20% off your purchase. That's 51FIFTYLTM.com. Are you primarily speaking with legislators in the state of New York or are we talking national? No, congr- Congress. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause I know for me, uh, all the work is pretty isolated to not right. only California, but central California. Mm-hmm. And so we've got, we don't have a lot of, you know, 
as much people that are in it. It's I, I, my favorite analogy is it's the great white shark in Jaws, and until it comes mm-hmm. up and bites one of their family members in mm-hmm. the ass, a lot of them aren't going to get to action. And I mm-hmm. and I feel for them in that way. I hope that's mm-hmm. not the case. I don't want that for anybody. Right. I, you know, you've lost too many people. I've lost too many people mm-hmm. too to this disease of addiction. And um, yeah, it's disheartening. Let me ask you this. I haven't mm-hmm. been able to ask someone this, you know, about our, um, our, you know, our safe supply approach and, mm-hmm. and everything. My understanding, cause I've talked with people in Canada, which Canada mm-hmm. sounds like they've totally screwed it up cause they wanted to model after Portugal. That's shown mm-hmm. some really good success and results. Mm-hmm. Where do you see where we're at in the United States? Are we doing a good job at looking at some of those other countries that have, have also done a great job? I mean, I don't know that we're doing a good job nationally. Um, I'd say, you know, in New York City, where I live, we are the first city in the country to have um, safe injection sites. Mm -hmm. So that means that, you know, people can go there to use drugs safely. There are trained medical professionals there in case there is an overdose. They have all of the regular like harm reduction services, such as like clean needles and fentanyl testing strips. And there is also a pathway through these organizations to get on medicated assisted treatment. Um, and they have been, you know, very, very successful. I'm not a huge fan of the mayor of New York right now, <laughs> but I will give him this. He went to visit um, the safe injection site and uh was really impressed with what he saw and like on inter- international overdose awareness day um, was part of the effort to hand out naloxone to people and fentanyl testing strips. Mm. And, and, you know, in, in the state of New York, you know, there are a lot of states like this, but, but some naloxone and fentanyl testing strips are considered drug paraphernalia, which is right. ridiculous. Um, state of New York, you can take like an online training course. I made my teenager do it. And, um, you get trained how to administer naloxone. They send you a naloxone kit with accreditation so that you have liability insurance. So I think here we're seeing um, and the initial numbers on those, on these like increased harm reduction services are good. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it's hard to show the data until this has been implemented for some time. But, you know, I've spoken to countless parents in the tri-state area this year with from, you know, upper middle-class families who've lost a minor child to a fentanyl overdose, accidental fentanyl overdose. Um, We may not want our children to try drugs. I think most of us, you know, that's not our wish for them, but the reality is, is that there's a high likelihood you know, I'm part of Generation X, 80% of Gen Xers tried cocaine, right? So, you know, in high school or college or their 20s, whatever. So I think that number's actually gone down quite a bit. But if you look at like the number of people who try something at some point in their life, there are now the problem is, is that there could be fentanyl in it. And, you know, on a street dealer level, they don't know that there's, you know, fentanyl in it. We had a... um it was a really highly publicized thing where a few different professionals in the New York area all died from fentanyl overdoses on the course of like a weekend. And the the dealing service that they used, dealing delivery service that they used, didn't know there was fentanyl in it, realized there was fentanyl in it. And part of how they caught the dealers was because they had been frantically trying to reach these clients to tell them that they had discovered that there was fentanyl in the cocaine. Um, you know no one is going to recover if they're dead, right? That's like the bottom line of harm reduction. It's to reduce harm. So I think that that we can look at sort of the success of these pilot programs in in a place like New York. And, and, you know, any major city has way more access to harm reduction. It's it's really rural areas that probably suffer the most. Um, Now, I can't even remember what your question was. (laughs) It was about like, what do we think we're in terms of what we're doing here? Yeah. Now, with the new under the Biden administration, with the new drugs are who originally was not pro harm reduction, completely pivoted. And they are like one of the things that's up um, for legislation is an increased access to 
uh, medication assisted treatment, which I think is phenomenal because during the pandemic, when they started allowing people to do take home um, methadone or to, you know, to, to access, to more easily access buprenorphine based um, medications, which are all, you know, used for, for um, uh, people who have substance use disorders related to opioids. They, did not see any increase. They saw a decrease in sort of like um, using drugs while on medicated assisted treatment. Mm-hmm. They saw a decrease in overdoses. They saw a decrease in relapse. It's, I mean, the data is there, right? As much as we may not think that that's the right way to do it, who cares? Like you want people, the ultimate goal is we want people to le- live and we want people to recover. Yeah. So if these evidence-based methods are effective, we should implement them. And Mm -hmm. that is, that's definitely sort of what the the movement that's happening around sort of federal legislation. It's not happening fast enough, but it's happening, which is why I keep talking to legislators. (laughs) Uh, Well, we got you. Thank you. No, because for me, uh, you know, opioids wasn't the issue. People always laugh like, uh, I mean, I, you know, I pop Vicodin and other right, things, right. I, you know, I had that first time sickness and it's like, yeah, not for me, my brain, right. you know, cocaine. No, thank you. I'm paranoid right. enough as is. Right. Um. So, you know, I don't have that experience. I've mm-hmm. never had to step into a methadone so I, clinic. I don't. So I don't know that right. experience. So, you know, I've got to ask people that have been there. You've been there. And um, the one thing I am curious about if we and I hope we get there and I am. From my understanding of like what Portugal did, it's, you know, the 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 talk of decrim mm-hmm. a lot of people. Is it that they didn't decriminalize it, but the difference was you didn't go to jail, you mm-hmm. went to treatment. Mm-hmm. And do you think I mean, we're getting that movement going? That it's I mean, like- certainly. I mean, that's like even just with like sort of drug drug court, right? That's the whole purpose of sure. drug court is to to defer, you know, to to um instead of sending somebody to jail, we send them to treatment. I have mixed feelings about court mandated treatment because Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't know how high the success rates are through our drug court system. One of the things I'll find it later and send it to you is there was a big write up in the uh, New York times Sunday magazine earlier this year. Um, There's a drug court in New Mexico where the judge has changed the way the drug court program works there in this one district so that um, because in, in drug courts now, like if somebody tests has like a dirty test, they get kicked out of the program. You do not get kicked out of the program there. You just have to keep participating because, you know, relapse is a high probability, especially for people who are opioid users. So instead of kicking them out of the program, it's like, no, let's just, okay, let's get them back on, you know, okay, we acknowledge it, we get them, we continue the treatment. We adjust what we need to adjust, you know, and, and for anyone who looks at addiction and alcoholism from like a disease model perspective, if somebody was being treated for cancer and one protocol treatment protocol didn't work, the doctors wouldn't say, well, sorry, we're not going to treat you because that treatment protocol didn't work. So you're screwed. Yeah. We're going to, you know, here's a death sentence. <laughs> yeah. They would say, okay, what other options are there? Let's try this. And we need to have the same approach with treating addiction. If something is not working for that individual, it this is not a moral issue. There may be there could be a number of reasons that it doesn't work, including the fact that, you know, as I said, your brain's neural pathways are changed by trauma and addiction. And it takes a certain amount of time and cognitive behavioral therapies to to reroute those neural pathways. Yeah. So it's it's just like it's such common sense stuff but i think that like so many things in terms of legislature people like to put sort of a higher a moral hierarchy into into how we view things and everything becomes very black and white um or they throw some sort of religious bent into it and it's just it's it's ridiculous that's there's no there's no evidence <laughs> in in that sort of thinking yeah well and it's the it's really dehumanizing it's mm-hmm. you know it's like uh i was reading something uh 
neuropsychologist was was talking about that you know neural pathways and mm-hmm. and the, their sole focus was just just the brain and treating mm-hmm. the brain it's like well you gotta treat this is a whole being i i don't mm-hmm. know about you Aaron. i'm fortunate i got all my limbs and right stuff works it's like this this is a whole thing let alone you know i've made parallels for people like the troubled kid at school mm-hmm. how effective was sending that kid home what if his home was yeah. the environment exactly it was clearly normally it is especially with little kids you know it's like it it, it doesn't work we can't was, just go like no. you're suspended here's your punishment we're not going to help you anymore what does that tell them so they've already so let's let's take the 25 let's take a 25 year old who's probably been most likely failed at home or at least some traumas mm-hmm. you know maybe not on purpose my parents it wasn't on purpose but yeah same yeah yeah here it here it happened uh maybe they had trouble in school too so two institutions have failed them so you've got a third one and you're just going to tell them yep yeah, you're not good enough bye right i've got a real problem with that yeah and, and you know i mean i was watching something recently where somebody was talking about parenting And that like they were talking about like behavior, right? Behavioral issues and how often, you know, behavior is communication, right? So when a child acts out, they're communicating something that they don't know how to express through words. They're telling us that they're they're they are communicating something through that behavior. It's the same thing as people grow up, because how many adults do we know, you know, and I'll include myself in this when I was younger who have no emotional regulation skills or poor at best, right? So they act like children. And it's the same thing when people have behavior that that is atypical or behavior that's problematic, generally speaking, with some, you know, exceptions, few exceptions, there is they are communicating something. A person who is healthy and well-adjusted doesn't act out in those ways. Yeah. Yeah. No. <laughs> and I've experienced it <laughs> recently in my home, unfortunately. Oh. Uh, but, hey, that's part of it. But, you know, I, I like I've, uh, uh, especially my youngest, and, and talked to talk to them. And, uh, you know, it's like, hey, be glad your dad went through he w- did because I'm all about therapy. And my right. youngest is on board with it. And matter of fact, mm-hmm. like, hey, can I do this more frequently? Right. I don't think every other week is enough for, right. for the issues there. So um, and, and and as parents, it's not like we're going to do it perfect. Like I said, it's not, it's not like I, <laughs> I, I do it perfectly now, even with like 20 years of recovery, I still make mistakes. Sure. I'm just they're not as big. And I'm much quicker to correct them, right? right? That's the biggest difference. But the good news about that is that like, thank goodness I do make mistakes because my kids get to, get to see me model like what happens when we make a mistake. Yeah. Does the world end? No, <laughs> you know, yeah. we, we take responsibility for it and we say, okay, next time I'm going to do that. And I'm going to show you that next time I'm going to do that. I'm going to handle it differently. Yeah, it's uh, it's called not being a narcissist. Right. (laughs) So accepting a little responsibility here, Uh, which is still tough. Uh, Do you still have sometimes swallowing that pill going, damn it. okay, that is on me. It's time to make an amends. Or are you pretty? I think I'm pretty good about accepting responsibility now. I mean, I, I was talking to my husband about something recently, and he had said like, so he, he even like said something like that. He's like, oh, no, he's like, you're, but you're so quick to like, you know, you're so quick to like adjust. Like, like I might say something that's like, you know, like a jab or something. And then I, and then I stop and I, you know, go back and then acknowledge that that's not even what I meant. And that I said it because of, you know, X, Y, Z. And I think that, I think that I probably spent like so much time in discomfort trying to like force the thing that wasn't right or the thing that wasn't working that now I just know the relief that comes with like taking ownership and correcting course because it's that thing of like, you know, like, I don't know this, that, that saying like, eventually the bill will always come. I'd rather pay the bill and not be, have that like underlying anxiety about it. Because even if we try and push things like that away, it's there in the back of our head somehow and causing anxiety. So I am 
you know, I'm, I'm, I'm so much happier being able to own up to things quickly. (laughs) I tell me if you've had this, and I think it's the importance to share too, about even, you know, making an apology and, Mm -hmm. you know, an amends or behavior correction is I, I had two situations, one, you know, the nonprofit I work at, wonderful lady that works there, Mm -hmm. younger lady, and she always seems to have some car troubles. And the way it came out of my mouth Mm -hmm. afterwards, I was like, oh, that was kind of a little bit demeaning, maybe a little bit sexist. And I, you know, took her aside, apologized. She's Mm -hmm. like, oh, I didn't take it that way at all. But it was the relief of my conscience that. I felt like that and I didn't want that relationship to be there. And I had another situation of a buddy, you know, asking me, you know, about certain stuff and Mm -hmm. and somebody that I had to get away from, but he still has a connection to. And, um, you know, I just call him like, hey, I'm sorry. You know, I wasn't trying to like gaslight you, change your opinion of this person. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you're kind of inquisitive and. Um, he's like, no, bro. Like, hey, it's state. You know, we're we're friends. This is trust our space. This stays between us. I'm not gonna go. Well, do you know what Jason said? And right. uh, you know, but he's like, I didn't take it that way at all. I just was being a friend so you could vent. But again, for me to be able to be like, ooh, I didn't fully get that out, or or that might have been misconstrued for someone that I value. It is so important for me now. Right. Yeah, because I don't want that interest either. <laughs> No, I mean, it's like I and I also just find that like when I clear that stuff out, it just leaves so much more room to create, to enjoy my life, to be able to be present. Because when I'm when I have something like that nagging me in the back of my head, it 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 affects my focus. It affects my ability to be present. Yeah, same, same. Well, Aaron, I got so many different things, so hopefully we'll do this again. Uh, my plan sure. here, too, is uh, uh, get multiple people on so we could do some discussionary type yeah. of things more, too. So keep up the amazing work. Um, tell people where to find the book. Uh, ask Aaron how to find you on social media, and then we're going to jump into some random questions. Sure. So I'm. you can find me on my website, AaronCar.com. My advice column is Ask Aaron. It's at AskAaron.substack.com. And I'm at Aaron Carr at, on all social media. The book is available wherever books are sold, independent bookstores, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, and all the rest. Yeah, the Audible is really good too, folks, by the way. Yeah, I love that. I didn't do the narration, but I love the narrator. <laughs> yeah, no, it's the, at first I was trying to figure out if he's like, no, but she gets you. Yeah. Like, yeah. The, like the, the mannerisms and there's certain language mm-hmm. you even use in there. That's, that's very like, like, ew, you know, and she does right. such a wonderful <laughs> job. So if you're like me and an audiobook person, get the audiobook. It is, uh, it's just a phenomenal book. All right, Aaron, uh, random questions. These okay. are just for funds. Cause I like to <laughs> wrap up with something more lighthearted. <laughs> um, being that it is a wonderful book and who knows, maybe people have already reached out about making a movie or a TV series mm-hmm. out of it. Cause I see it here. Who would you want to play adult you? Um, well, <laughs> I can't really say right now because it's currently in development. <laughs> oh, I nailed it. All right. Hey, if you need a tall, slender guy, hit me up. I'm a hell of an actor. Well, the first time I've had to table that question. So I'm looking forward to it. Keep me in the loop on that. That'll be awesome. Um, yeah, it has to be a series, though. I'm just saying mm-hmm. it has to be a series. Yeah, it is. It, yeah, I that's. Mean, just the movement through your childhood and everything. It's like, oh gosh. Yeah. It's, it's one of those, I'm such a visual person. And again, to tout the book gave me such a wonderful visual. I could smell when you're talking about the hay, when you're horse riding and you know, all those things. Anyways. um, All right. You're stranded on a deserted Island. You have Uh one movie with you and one music artist, greatest (sighs) hits. My gosh. That's really hard. One movie. Uh Uh-huh. God, I don't know. It's really hard to pick one. Okay. Um, okay. I'll let's do the music first. I think I might, I think that I would probably pick David Bowie. Okay. That was the first thing that popped into my head, but it could be any other number of artists who I love too for um, the music. And then for the film, Oh my gosh. I think if I was stranded with only one film, it would have to be a comedy 
Um, <laughs> I don't know why this is so hard. Um, this is going to sound so silly. So I don't know why I'm picking something that I watched over and over again when I was a kid. And I haven't even watched it in years, but for some reason, this is what popped into my head. When I was a kid, I had record, I used to record movies like on VHS from like cable. Right. Right. And one of the ones that I recorded was Mel Brooks history of the world because it's so funny and so silly. And I'm sure like there's a lot in there that's probably not politically correct today, but it's so funny. And I, I don't know. That would be one of one of the possibilities. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's the hard thing, like as a movie fan, and I love Mel Brooks, too, is like, you know, uh, Blazing Saddles. I love that movie, but, oh, you know, some people. No. Yeah, there's so History many. History of the World isn't that controversial, <laughs> but, right? it's that, but it's so funny. But yeah, I mean, yeah. it's hard. Like there's a lot of there's so many films that I love, but some of them aren't necessary. I would want if I could only have one film, it would have to be something funny. <laughs> All right. Did you ever see Kentucky Fried movie? John Landis. No, I didn't. Okay, so it was like an adult Saturday Night Live early yeah. '80s, and I'm like, oh yeah, there's no way that could be made. No, today. oh, there's a lot of films that couldn't be made today. <laughs> right, right. Well, they could be made, but they would face a lot right. of backlash for <laughs> sure. Oh, that's funny. The funny thing too about in your book is like your musical taste. I'm like, if we were the same age and I grew up in LA, we probably would have been homies. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, you could have dinner with any one person, living or not. Who are they? Oh, God, these are such hard questions. Okay. Um, hmm. See, there's people who I really admire, but I'm like, who would be really funny? Right. <laughs> I, I always go back to that. Who would be really funny? I think I would be happy to have dinner with like any of the writers who were part of the Algonquin Roundtable, Dorothy Parker, Robert Benchley, James Thurber, one of those one of those writers because they were so quick-witted and dry and dark <laughs> yeah uh, i love it yeah people uh i i got asked one time uh about in an interview if you could uh play any character or any person from history and play them i was like edgar Allan poe they're like oh you're dark i'm like well i was kind of a depressed teenager right. so it worked. <laughs> uh last one before i leave you with the final thoughts uh i love this question if you could have one superpower, what would it be? Hmm. I think it would be the power to like stop time. Hmm. And I don't mean like indefinitely, but like if I could stop time in specific moments to like feel that moment for for even like a couple more minutes i think that would be pretty amazing that's pretty no one's ever said that i love <laughs> it i love it yeah all right aaron um this is such a pleasure i i just love the work you're doing it's nice to be able to make your acquaintance and and hopefully there's something we'll be able to work on outside of this space to uh as i grow in in my advocacy um what might you want to share with people? Maybe it's the addict struggling, a family member, a loved one, or people that just listen to this podcast to become informed. I mean, I think it's sort of like I always go back to my primary message about addiction, that it's just it's not a moral failing, that addiction is an example of a human being struggling with a very human condition. This is the Knocking Doors Down podcast, featuring celebrities, experts, and everyday people who have overcome adversities, including addiction, mental health, and trauma, to live purposeful lives. And that's what Knocking Doors Down is all about. Strengthening communities, providing resources, building awareness, empowering youth in need to overcome adversity and achieve success. This is what the Carlos Vieira Foundation is all about. Through our campaigns, the race for autism, race to end the stigma, and race to be drug free, we're able to help so many in need. Our goal is to provide support to families and children and give these families opportunities that might not normally arise. Learn more and find out how you can get involved. Visit Carlos Vieira. Foundation.org today. 
This podcast contains the views and opinions of the knocking doors down hosts and their guests to the show. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for informational purposes only. And because each person is sharing their unique perspective, please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions. Views and opinions expressed in the podcast and website are our own and do not represent that of our places of work. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or correction of errors. Privacy is of the utmost importance to us. For those wishing anonymity, people, places, and scenarios mentioned in the podcast have been changed to protect confidentiality at the request of certain guests. This website or podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast or website. In no way does listening, reading, emailing, or interacting on social media with their content establish a doctor-patient relationship. If you find any errors in any of the content of this podcast or blogs, please send a message through the contact page. This podcast is owned by KDD Media Company.